You're listening to Catholic Faith on the Move podcast, a journey on the road to heaven. On today's episode in our book segment, we're going to talk about an extremely popular conversion story. We're going to visit on pilgrimage a place in northwestern Ohio that's the unlikely home of over a thousand relics. And we're going to discuss St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, the first American-born saint. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle on us the fire of your love. The late Archbishop Fulton Sheen once wrote, There are not over a hundred people in the United States who hate the Roman Catholic Church. There are millions, however, who hate what they wrongly believe to be the Catholic Church. This is from the preface of our book this week, Rome Sweet Home by Scott and Kimberly Hahn, and it's their journey to Catholicism. It's a great conversion story that uh, many people have read and and loved and, and enjoyed reading it over the years. Uh, it's a, a really good detailed account of how a uh, person who was a Presbyterian minister and very anti-Catholic uh, over the course of time, study and uh, research and prayer uh, ended up joining the Catholic faith. And it talks about his conversion and then the difficulties of uh, living with a wife who's the daughter of a Presbyterian minister who hadn't converted yet and then her journey as well. So it's a really great, great story. What's so special is that it's not only inspirational for those searching out to know more about the Catholic Church, but personally, as a lifelong Catholic, I found it very interesting learning and being inspired by other people learning and how just how that process goes for someone coming into the church and converting. Yeah, it's a. I mean, it's a great story, and it's it, you know, it's often said that. The people who know the Catholic faith best are those who have converted to it rather than those who grew up in it. And, um, you know, I certainly learned a great deal about uh, the biblical nature of our faith from this book because Scott Hahn is such a, you know, biblical scholar and his ability to connect what was happening in the faith and at Mass during the liturgies, uh, all the traditions and, and sacraments, and connect them directly to the Bible um, was really a revelation for me as a cradle Catholic. Yeah, it really reconfirms what we believe, and it really helps us relate to those that are searching, and it helps us relate to people that um, are new Catholics and the experience they go through, um, so we can show some empathy and some support for them, uh, because especially this comes out through this book, it is very heart-wrenching to hear parts of it and how uh, both of them really struggle. And by the way, we're reading, this one is the special Lighthouse Catholic Media Edition, which originally when we first read this for the first time, probably about 10 years ago, um, it was more from Scott's point of view. Uh, this new Lighthouse Special Edition actually goes back and forth with Scott and Kimberly's position. So it really is interesting. So if you have the original, I would suggest getting this lighthouse edition. So you get that extra 
look at yeah. what Kimberly has to say. It adds another layer to the it, story. Yeah, it adds more flavor to it and gives you a great perspective on, you know, what she was feeling during the whole time. And, and she was not on the same, uh, on the same timeline as Scott Hahn was on her conversion. Uh, she was later than him. So uh, it gives a great perspective on, on what that's mm-hmm. like to be, you know, the spouse of someone who's going through a conversion like that. Mm-hmm. And, it's such a love story and to listen to it go through the different stages and also a testament to marriage and um, people really finding strength um, to persevere through these challenges because they really, through their whole life, uh, I know Kimberly's plan was she was the daughter of a Protestant minister and that's really where she saw herself as being the wife and being a team and a partner. And, uh, they went through that whole process together and they really had it laid out and it just came up and really rocked her world. Yeah, it was definitely, uh, it was definitely a world rocking thing. It, 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 it even, I mean, Scott's world was rocked as well. And he, he tried for years to fight it and to, you know, the, the story, the, the book is full of stories of him talking to, you know, Protestant scholars, um, basically begging them to change his mind. Why, why was he thinking this way? Why is he thinking that the Catholic faith, um, was so powerful and so true? And, and he was met at every turn with, he was asking more questions than they could answer. And, you know, the, the way he relates all these different stories in, in the book, it's just incredible. And, it, you know, it was shocking to him. And, you know, like I said, he was essentially, he was begging to be told, no, he's nuts, and, and this is why the Catholic faith isn't right. But he found no one that could answer that question. And it is interesting, like so many times you hear these stories that of conversion stories, somewhere in the past there was someone in their family, and I know what was almost hard to hear at the beginning was that uh, Scott's grandmother, uh, when she had passed away, gave him he found in her stuff a rosary. And, and at that time, he so disliked the Catholic Church that he not only just threw it away, but he destroyed it. And he kind of looks back at that. And later on, there's a beautiful him telling about him taking a half hour to an hour praying the rosary in front of the Blessed Sacrament and what it meant to him and how he came to rely on Mary um, in his faith journey, it's, it's such, that's a conversion in itself. Really. And, and I think one of the things that struck me as I uh, re- recall reading the book you know, was when he went to mass and he started just basically listing off all the different biblical references there are in the liturgy and how it just was, was shocking to him that this, you know, non Bible based religion that he thought Catholicism was, was so deeply entrenched in all the biblical uh, stories and all the the Psalms and all the prayers, uh, Old and New Testament, and that that recounting of that as he sat in the last pew. See, he was already a good Catholic. He was sitting in the last pew at the church, but uh, as he was sitting in this pew and just thinking to himself during the liturgy of all the the scriptural biblical references there were during the liturgy, uh, and it was incredible. And like I said, it was eye opening to me as a cradle Catholic. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, while uh, Scott was the catalyst in the change, uh, early on in their marriage, um, 
it was actually Kimberly through her uh, work with pro-life and uh, reading about family planning when they started discussing that as a couple coming to the realization and them actually saying, well, I guess the Catholics got that one right. And that was kind of the experience. They kept coming across this. Well, we'll give them that one until slowly. Um, we gave them all of them. Yeah. yeah there was nothing left. No and rock even, left unturned. Yeah. While they lost many friends, uh, the story goes on. And there also were some of their friends that throughout the, um, their conversion story that they had close friends that also converted, but they did at that time, they did lose a lot of their friends. And um, I think even as Catholics, as we are going on our journey, we find that, you know, as we um, move deeper into our faith, you know, our lives change and uh, go towards that way. And sometimes we also experience that with our family and our friends. Right. So it's encouraging to see that, you know, here's a couple that made a huge conversion change and they were able to, to live through it, uh, even with, a, you know, some friends who were lost along the way, others that came in um, and, you know, friends that supported them along the way as well. So it's a it's a great story. It's really it's it's not hard to read. I'm you know, if they're if he teaches like this, because he's now a theology professor, biblical professor at uh, Franciscan University, but I, I would dare say if there were more biblical professors like him, there'd be more people seeking religion degrees because his writing is, is very easy to read and very conversational. And of course, if you followed along with Scott Hahn, he's very prolific. If you go to your local Catholic bookstore, there's going to be a whole section just <laughs> on Scott Hahn. And um, I also had the opportunity, I've you know heard him speak several times, but and I know at our... Uh, Catholic conference for women, uh, Kimberly Hahn came and spoke too, and, and she does have a wonderful story. And so, um, it's great to see, uh, husband and wife team working together in their faith. Yeah. It's a great, uh, it's a great little inspiration. <laughs> I know it inspired us. So wasn't there something about a saint or something involved with her conversion as well that you were telling me about? Yeah. Conversion stories often have all these little twists and turns and ahas, but uh, towards the end when Scott had converted and he was kind of, Kimberly was kind of on the fence, one of his friends actually gave him a relic. And at that time, he really didn't know what to do with a relic. He, you know, knew in his faith, but he took it and he decided to carry it. And he looked in his pocket and every time, you know, he came up against, these situations with about faith with Kimberly, he would say a little prayer and um, they had chose this saint, uh, St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, because she was a convert from Protestantism and she was a mother and she had gone through several of these struggles. So there was something related there. And then, in a later discussion, once Kimberly did decide, uh, Scott brought up about how her, in confirmation, she needed to select a patron saint for a confirmation name. And so he didn't want to say anything, but he kind of in the back of his mind and 
He said that he kind of got a chill up his spine when he noticed she had a book on Elizabeth Ann Seton. And she said to him, I think I found my saint. Amazing powers these saints have, huh? Amazing. It's a, it's a great story and, and, you know, just shows the power of prayer and the power of saints and why we rely on them for their intercession. So um, as a tribute to that portion of the story, uh, we'll, we'll pick up the whole topic of relics and saints, specifically St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. So uh, being inspired by Rome Sweet Home, I think it's may inspire you to become a better Catholic, to know more about your faith and to go deeper. Um, it's a great book to share with other people. And um, it's also, as you read it, to remember how your conversion story, we all have a conversion story, how inspiring that is to others and share that conversion story with someone this week. Sounds like a good idea, Sue. Check out our blog and other information, including links to our Facebook and Twitter pages at our website, catholicfaithonthemove.com, or send us an email at catholicfaithonthemove at gmail.com. Enter devoutly, O pilgrim, for no place is holier than this on the new continent. Any guess to where we're going today? Anybody? We're going to Maria Stein, Ohio for today's pilgrimage. In 1875, because of war and unrest in Europe, Father J.M. Gartner brought a collection of relics to the United States, and he entrusted them to the Sisters of Precious Blood at Maria Stein in northwestern Ohio. Um, they built a relic chapel there in 1892 to house the collection. Um, that collection has grown to over 1,000 relics. It's the second largest collection of relics in the United States after St. Anthony's Chapel in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And the primary display of the relics is actually in a hand-carved altar um, from a group down in Cincinnati that built that. So a uh, very cool place, um, a genealogical center, as well as the um, you know spiritual center that would come from being a place that holds a thousand relics of saints. What's it like going there? Well, I had the opportunity to go there, and it's a very nice day trip. I would say if you're close by and definitely in the area worth a stop. It's in located in a small little town and nice little rolling pastures and it's set up nicely with outside it has some the stations of the cross and it has some different statuaries of saints. And what's neat is they have these little QR codes on it so you could take your phone and you go up to each little statue and it'll give you the information on that saint. So just doing that for a little bit was really interesting. And then the day that we went, the Adoration Chapel was closed, but they have an Adoration Chapel. So uh, we did get there in, at the time so we could attend Mass there. So uh, that's another thing when you go to their website, you might want to check out their different days for their adoration chapel and the website. Um, and after going to mass, we went into the relic chapel and it's, it's almost overwhelming. It's not real big, but it's just the amount of relics. 
and they have a little card that you can go up and you can identify all the different little relics. And it's such just a presence. You just wanted to stay there and it's so prayerful. And you go around and you're hunting out your favorite um, saints and the reliquaries are beautiful. It's just artistry. Amazing how these relics have been preserved and collected. And of course, the highlight, I think, for me was the relic of the True Cross. After going through that section, we also, we of course hit the gift shop, one of my favorite stops whenever I'm roaming around and traveling. But we hit the gift shop and a good little tip, which I share with people and they did have some bottles is when I go to all these different sites, I always collect holy water and I just find something special. And I know that it makes a good gift. And I know that everyone always appreciates that. It's a, um, a nice little thing, thing to bring, bring home, home with you. you. Well, if you get holy water at a place that has relics from a thousand saints, you know, it's pretty holy water. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, the next thing that I found interesting is they have a heritage museum and it's on the second floor of this older building. And as you go through it, it has some of the most unusual items. There's more relics up there, but uh, a lot of the relics are items made by the sisters and it's almost like folk art. For some reason, it sticks in my head. They had a hair from Padre Pio. So <laughs> that really sticks in my head for some reason. But most of the relics that they do have there, 95% of them are first-class relics. So, and there are uh, two other types of uh, relics, second-class and third-class. And so uh, a first-class relic is actually from the body of the saint. It's usually a bone fragment or a piece of hair, in the case of St. Padre Pio, Um and then second-class relics are things that, uh, usually clothing, that the saint used. Um, and then a third-class relic are items that are touched to a saint or to the first-class relic of a saint. So those are the three classes of relics. And, you know, it's you may be thinking to yourself, what is it with this relic thing? And what, you know, we, we have bones of the saints in a reliquary. What is that all about? Well, you know, from the beginning of the church... Um, Martyrs have been held in high esteem, you know, because they so perfectly lived their lives for Christ that they died for him as well. So and at the beginning of uh, Catholicism, it was tradition to gather around a martyr's tomb in order to celebrate the Eucharist. So uh, as the Eucharist memorializes Christ's sacrifice, they conduct the Eucharist on top of the tomb of a martyr to recognize the martyr's sacrifice as well. And eventually, you know, as Catholicism grew, um, it went from holding Eucharist on the tomb of a martyr to actually building churches over the tomb of a martyr. So uh, like St. Peter's in Rome is a, is a perfect example of that, where it was built over the tomb of St. Peter, the first pope. We've always held the saints in high esteem. We've always held any relic from the saint in high esteem, whether it's first, second, or third class relic, um, because of the power of the saint can be felt through that relic. And, and as Sue said, the, you know, the, the peace that was in this place because of the presence of a thousand relics, um, is, is overpowering. It's really, it's really strong and, uh, 
uh, a great way to help solidify our faith. So next time you're going to your church, if you don't already know, uh, talk to your priest um, and ask. Uh, there's probably some relics in the altar under the base of the altar in your parish. Uh, check with them and see uh, see which saints are in your church watching out for you. Uh, for more information on Maria Stein Shrine, you can visit their website. It is mariasteinshrine.org. Today's saint on the road is St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. We've already alluded to her influence in the conversion of Kimberly Hahn earlier in the show. Um, she is the first American-born saint. Uh, she was born in 1774, two years before the American Revolution. Uh, her grandfather was an Episcopal minister, so she was raised Episcopalian. Uh, her mother died when she was three years old during childbirth. Uh, she married a guy named William Seton, who... Uh, was a pretty wealthy businessman and whose father was a, a fairly wealthy businessman as well. You know, just to show how prominent they were, they were actually married by the first Episcopalian bishop in the United States. Um, her husband had some business difficulties uh, during the run-up to the War of 1812. The, the troubles that were going on between England and France, the United States was, was causing some havoc with shipping lanes. His health began to decline. He'd, already, he'd always had tuberculosis, but the stress of... Uh, struggling with business and um, and the tuberculosis began to take its toll. Uh, their doctor told them that they should go to Italy to help recover because the climate there would be much more conducive to his getting better from tuberculosis. Uh, unfortunately, shortly after they arrived in Italy, he did pass away. Um, but it was in Italy that uh, Elizabeth Ann Seton was first ex- exposed to Catholicism um, by some of uh, William Seton's business partners that were in Italy at the time. Uh, when she came back from Italy to New York, uh, she uh, further studied and was received into the church on March 14th uh, by the Reverend Matthew O'Brien, who's pastor at St. Peter's Roman Catholic Church, the only Catholic church in New York City. Uh, it's kind of shocking to think that in 1805, there was only one Catholic church in New York City, but uh, the city had some pretty strict anti-Catholic laws that had just been repealed not too many years prior. So. Uh, that's why uh, that was the first one there and only one there at the time. Um, in order to support herself since she was widowed, she started a school for girls, um, which was doing well, except that when she converted to Catholicism, the mothers of all the school girls that were in there who were Episcopal didn't like that, so they started pulling the girls out. Um, she actually ended up meeting a uh, traveling priest um, from France who was... Um, looking for someone to start basically a Catholic school for girls. And so uh, St. Elizabeth Ann Seton worked with him uh, to create the uh, the St. Joseph's Academy and Free School dedicated to the education of Catholic girls. Uh, she started a uh, religious community in Emmitsburg, Maryland, dedicated to the care of the children of the poor. Uh, this was the first congregations of religious sisters to be founded in the United States. And the school there was the first free Catholic school in America. The rest of her life was spent um, leading and developing the new congregation, um, and she passed away um, on January 4th, uh, 1821, at the age of 46. So in 46 years, she started out Episcopal, um, converted to Catholicism, started a couple of schools, a religious order, and all of a sudden I feel like I'm a slacker because <laughs> I'm older than 46 right now. You know what I'm saying? And it's amazing how... 
in that time period as a woman with children being Catholic when they're being persecuted and coming up against all those issues, how strong these early saints are. They just are amazing and they're so inspiring. And I think that really you look at these saints back then, even though this is like a more contemporary saying comparatively, um, I just think this is really inspiring to our youth today. So uh, Elizabeth Ann Seton was, had a deep devotion to the Eucharist and to Mary. What I find when I was looking at um, her famous quotes, the one that struck me was, disorder in society is the result of disorder in the family. And that's something that could be said today. Yeah, it's certainly very true of what's going on in society today. And and it just shows that, you know, it's all foundational and it's all related. So when the family unit is strong, society is strong, it all just builds off of that. And you can see that every day. So the saints are speaking to us constantly. So they always have something to give us and something to add to our society. We've seen how, you know, like we said, to how they inspired people. And I think that maybe someone coming into the Catholic faith, this might be a good saint to um, ask for intercessory prayers. She's absolutely a strong saint and and certainly a, a great, you know, source of inspiration for someone coming into the faith, especially if it's a mother um, who's coming into the faith with children. Um, you know, this was, this was an example that we can all live by. And, uh, you know, what she started was, was very strong. In fact, 10 years after her death, the, the sisters were running orphanages and schools as far west as Cincinnati and New Orleans, and they had established the first hospital west of the Mississippi in St. Louis, Missouri. So, you know, was it, she was a driving force, and she inspired the, her contemporaries as well as being able to inspire uh, people today with what she taught and how she lived her life. Yeah, and if you would like to learn more about St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, a good place to start would be visiting the National Shrine of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton in Emmitsburg, Maryland. And as you're maybe many people are planning those family trips, remember that there's many of these shrines to saints all over the place. And uh, this one, matter of fact, is just 10 miles from Gettysburg. So... I think that it'd be great for your family to make it a plan to stop in and get some more information. And you can go to their website, seatonheritage.org. Another inspiring saint. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. We'll see you on the road.